how do you make that as efficient as possible? How do you build the internal capabilities to have that human working with the machine aspects to enable them and be able to deliver the 100% solution and most of that technologically, some of that from a different kind of delivery mechanism involving more human effort, but be able to be competitive in how you're delivering that. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Vlad Ilman with us in this session for this discussion, and he's CTO and Chief Scientist at Fiscal Node. So welcome to the discussion, Vlad. Hi, Iman. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what Fiscal Node does? Absolutely. So I joined a small startup that was trying to, at that time, help unlock what data was coming out of different levels of government and make it useful for different kinds of decision makers. So this was nine years ago, almost 10 now, 2013. I joined as the first machine learning scientist with most of my background in building large-scale systems for machine learning and natural language kinds of problems, machine translation, question answering, sentiment analysis. And at the time, I was really excited about how do we apply those to more computational social science problems like political science, the economics, law, and be able to create the kind of efficiency or analysis that we're seeing in some other fields where they're using more structured data to be able to power people's decision-making. And Fiscano at that time was just starting to work on state legislative tracking and identifying at that level of state government, what's the most important thing. So fast forward, you know, nine, almost 10 years now, now I lead the, the global R&D organization, which has a number of different functions across our collection, ingestion, and refinement of all of this unstructured data, which has grown to not just state tracking, but local, state, federal, international governments, as well as news and social media, and particularly a lot more of our own bespoke analysis and editorial content that we're producing. So there's essentially, if you think of a layered presentation, there's the ingestion of data, there's the analysis that we're doing both automatically and with people that are experts in the field, and then the presentation and different workflows in the product. So Fiscal essentially is trying to answer two questions. So what's going on today and what do you do about it? So for all of our customers, we serve the data through multiple different particular workflows and number of different SaaS applications where government affairs professional or general counsel or public affairs or marketer can essentially get what information is important to them and then start to act on it and work with their teams or collaborate to what they need to do about it. Now, being in such a position that you are closely working with these technologies and AI is part of it. And you are collecting a lot of data and content and mine it and you know, do the analysis on top of it as well. And, and you have seen the company during the course of last nine years that you have been with the company from 
you know, small size to growing and growing. There are a lot of questions I'm going to ask you with regard to number one, software with AI, you know, what's the difference between a software without AI, from managing the software, from building the product, from working with customers, productizing it, business perspective of it. The other questions I would like to ask you is about the, as the company grows, how do you really see that you can really expand and change positions, but at the same time, having that as a kind of not super tactically being done, but more strategically and thinking about it in a more kind of, this is the way we should do it. So let's start with the software and the AI. From your perspective, does it change the equation when you bring AI and data and content, not just the software, but that's really the product that you are offering. It's more than software, it's a lot of data, it's a lot of AI also algorithms that you are offering. How is different from building it, managing the product, offering it, and then you get to the customer and business side of it? The answer is it depends. So yes and no, it does change some things. And as with most technologies, as it becomes more ubiquitous, the field of general software development starts to encompass and product management starts to encompass a lot of things that might have been considered separate skills or separate techniques. And so I think we've seen that with a number of different technologies as they cross the maturity curve and enter general use and expectations. And so maybe 15 years ago, there would have been a special call out to this is an AI feature. It would have been a dot AI company. Whereas in most cases now, we actually, I think, have learned from really good consumer products that it's easier to hide most of the complexity under the hood. And the feel of the product, the, the UX, is actually as seamless as it would have been before, but now you're able to do some of the things that you probably couldn't do before. They would have cost some prohibitive amount, or they were done very inefficiently with a lot of people. And so the answer is yes, it is different in how you build it, but maybe not from the customer's perspective. They might get the same product as a result or something they couldn't have gotten before. They don't know all of that, what's going in. On the internal side, I think that there's a couple key things that probably are, are useful to think about and call out. One is the unexpected nature of the serendipity that might come from depending on external factors. And there's two here, right? Like if you're collecting external data, as opposed to just transactional data that you control and have a lot more control over, that's part of your product. And two, then what you do with that data as you model it, as you present it back to the clients. So on the external data part, obviously there's ways in which you're trying to mitigate, normalize, standardize as you pull data from the real world but you're not going to be able to account for the fact that the sources themselves might change. And so that breaks part of your process of just ingesting. And you can't account for all the variants of what you might see inside of especially unstructured data. If you're collecting news or other kinds of documents or social media, even there's always going to be something that's coming out that you might have not accounted for. So you have to have more robust, I would say modular capabilities so that you can separate some of the processing steps. So you don't know what you're going to see but you want your system to be able to handle most things without intervention, except for the places where you know you want to intervene. And so what I mean is, if a source site introduces a new field, you might want to have your crawlers or scrapers be able to grab that, but you might not pull that directly back into your application as soon as you know it's available without knowing exactly how a user might use that or if it's content that's valuable. You might want to separate out your topic extraction or entity extraction capabilities, which are both two AI models that you can run on top to add metadata to the source data and separate those out so you can improve those separately and be able to rerun them as you improve and reprocess the data. And so just having this modular mindset of these components, which individually you can keep adapting 
I mean, it's not that dissimilar from building a microservices architecture underneath your application where two things don't necessarily know about each other, depend on each other. But now you're introducing this complexity of having to reprocess some part of, of the data set and make it back to availability into application, different versions of models that you're trying to run, different sets of training data that they were based off of and keeping track of the provenance of the data as well as how the features were extracted and then how the models were trained, where they're served. So you're introducing complexity and more technical debt in that aspect. And then the second part, which is leading to it, is the modeling itself, the AI. So I think one of the biggest things I've seen is, especially in designing an application, you design for certain workflows, you expect certain customers to do certain things, certain personas or profiles. And there's an expectation of if they click on this, if they see this, they can go here and do this. When you're dealing with a model that's producing some probability distribution or an assignment with some confidence, there are big questions on variance of what, first of all, customer might see and how you translate that to the actual product. Second of all, the, the error rate, how often that is not going to be what you expect or what the customer expects. And so I think one of the biggest failure modes, and there's a couple we can talk about in building an AI product, is first identifying what is the right objective that you're trying to solve for with the model that you're putting into this production application or workflow. Do you know what the actual translation of an accuracy or precision or recall score is to the value the customer is getting from it, the business impact. It's not always clear that going from, let's say, 80% recall or 90% precision means anything. It might be that you can solve the problem at 20% precision and design the UI and the UX around it such that you can still surface the most valuable thing and that's what the customers want. Or you might need that 99% recall in order for the, anything to be of value at all. That's one of the hardest parts is identifying that. And it's very hard to get that in the kind of mockups and prototypes you would usually build for a software application where someone can just walk through it in kind of a, a, the mocked up mindset. You actually have to usually build some prototype of the data set, build a model and start iterating and prototyping that and get that in front of customers in some way to collect feedback. And so it's almost pushing out that feedback cycle where there's some preliminary work you have to do in order to get real data and understanding of what that is going to look like in order to start getting the feedback on, is this actually valuable? Is this the right business metric? and be able to know if you want to shut off that experiment, if that's not working and be able to do that relatively quickly. That's, I think, two of the biggest differences, the unstructured nature of the data that you're getting and having to deal with that and the processes and keeping that modular. And then the unknowns about what the model is going to look like, translating that to the right business metric, and then tracking and having that feedback loop of, are you solving for the thing that you thought you were solving for? And being, I think, pretty honest about whether AI is actually having an impact or not. So I think that's one of the, maybe the last points is you might not need to have some complex machine learning model or AI model underneath the hood doing something. I think oftentimes you can start with something very simple. If it's computing some, extracting something from a, of a document, it's right expression. If it's doing some sort of ranking, it's doing maybe a recency or some sort of recency, just something simple. Is that getting at increasing usability or increasing happiness with the product? And then if it is, then you can start increasing the complexity. That applies to some problems. Some problems you have to start with something much more complex, but knowing when and how to divide that so you can actually go toward something that's value. Again, talking about more enterprise use cases here. I think that's, that's one of the actual skills that makes it different from building another kind of product where you can mock all this up and present it to users and get feedback in a, a much, I think, tighter cycle. Is it true to say that, for example, in a traditional software model, that only the software is the product, is the value? You are providing a software that version by version is getting better and better. So customers see added value to it. But when you add another dimension to it, that might be content or data. And on top of the software, 
also data and content is getting better and adds additional value that customers from outside look at it and now there's a double value there. It's just value power too, because over the course of years, then they can see not just the software getting better, but also the stickier part and the highest value part probably is the part that is the content and the data and the intelligence and the metadata improvement and all of those things that have been built around the content. I mean, just think of, for example, Amazon. As a software, you can build the shopping kind of e-commerce part of it, not that difficult. I mean, it can be built by a company like a competitor of them relatively fast, but what do you want to do with all of that data and recommendations and all of the feedback that you have collected and you can go there and just read about all of those. Those are not the things that you can build within a year or so. That has been built over the course of years and adds more value even than the software itself. How do you see that from business aspect that if an entrepreneur, a SaaS company today, starts something, needs to think about it, am I just building a software or am I building also on top of that the intelligence, the value that comes with that kind of data and content that would add value to my offering every year? That's a great question. I think if I could divide it into several, I think there's a lot of different, really interesting threads underneath. One is what is the real network effect? If you're building a moat or building some sort of flywheel, what in fact are you building? Again, recognizing that, being honest. The second is, is there separate value from the data and the algorithms from the actual software product that you're building? I mean, those are obviously related. So starting on the first one, so it could be the case that you've designed a product such that people are putting in their data, they're doing stuff, but it's not actually obvious what kinds of moat you're building because that data is not that valuable going forward. It's not representative of the future. It might not even be that valuable to that customer later on. Or it could be like in Amazon's cases, as they're learning more about your preferences as you're buying, you actually start learning a profile about each user. Same with Netflix, you're learning a profile about viewing activity. And you actually start pulling that back into the product in a way that you're using their data and you're using your algorithms that you've built up over time in the best way to recognize how to select the right movie or the right product that for that customer, their experience starts getting better. The software itself and the data are not two separate things. That's one of the main points I wanted to make that from a customer's perspective, all they care about is, are they able to do the thing that they want to do on your product? Are they getting that end-to-end value? Is the solution that you're promising them coming about, is it easier to buy something on Amazon than it is to buy it somewhere else? Is it better to watch a movie on Netflix from other platforms? And that has a lot of variables, right? That's both the content that's available, it's a product or movie, it's how quickly you can get it. So some people probably don't care so much about the recommendations Amazon's making. It's more about the prime delivery and the ability to get it the next day or for free. Netflix, it might be that it's available in your country or has some sort of content that's not available somewhere else. So just, I think, calling out, I know it's expanding from your question, but I think it's it's really good to think about all the different ways that you're adding value to be innovative that could actually be in the go-to-market model. So Prime and that discount program is totally independent of the data that Amazon's collecting or the e-commerce that they've built. But that program, I think, has launched their revenue, at least when they launch it to, a, you know, beyond, I think, what they were expecting and getting a lot more people into that. And I think that's pulled people in that probably didn't care about some of the other parts. And then the data that you're collecting, is there value in it beyond the software? So separating that out, right? Separately from the software, are there other things that you could do with it? Not just a feedback loop, not a flywheel, 
but is there a separate kind of application you can build around it? So I think some companies warn that there's a data exhaust that's coming out of their software product. They can either expand into a different market and offer a different kind of product or provide some sort of other value to a different set of customers with the data they're collecting. I mean, that's obviously the model for marketing for Facebook or Google. So us as users are contributing data there and the product of the product that they're offering is that we're getting better search results, network connections, and then they're taking that data and creating another product for marketing ecosystem that those people are able to service us. And so that there's several layers of, I think, the product and the data that you're collecting that all intertwine together. Now getting to the other aspect that we just talked about at the beginning, and that's about the growth of the organization. And, and then you see the positions are being created or some organizations need to be remodeled or some new division needs to be created or some needs to be merged. What's your experience with that? Do you have any particular kind of guideline in your mind that when you look at it every six months, you say, this is what is going to happen in six months, so I need to get ready for it, or I need to prepare my people for the next year or next two years because this is the direction we are getting, so they need additional maybe training. How do you do those kind of things when your organization is growing and you want to make sure that you're maximizing the benefit you can get from the existing team while you serve the future of the company well? It's a great question, a great transition actually from that we were talking about technology and, and how to think about building products and the data that we're building it off of in the AI and how we think about users to what do you need to have internally as a company? So we talk about product development and we often, I think, focus on the processes and technology part, but there's also the people part. I mean, that's one of the, the most essential. It's probably the essential part because it's really going to come down to who is working on these problems, how are they executing, and the technology and the processes there to facilitate the people actually making decisions and interacting. And I think that one of the more interesting parts of building a company and going from zero to one employees to five, 10 to 100 to 1,000 is identifying how those processes and technology change and reacting to those changes or proactively identifying places where you are not doing well and starting to position yourselves to do better. So the way I think about it is when you're smaller, everything is a much faster iterative loop. There's a lot less process you need to have. People are hopefully naturally incentivized to be over-communicating, to be understanding the customers really well, because even back-end engineers, front engineers, everyone is talking to or at least seeing customers on a much more frequent basis and day-to-day -day basis, or at least seeing that interaction. And there isn't much data that you have to support your decisions yet. There's a lot more, I think, intuition that needs to come in and a lot more of your own hypotheses that you can go into the market with and validate and test. And then we could talk about how you're seeing if that's working or not by the traction you're building up or how quickly you're getting new signs on or if the marketing funnel is growing or if the sales cycle is decreasing. But essentially, it's you know getting that kind of feedback loop going. As you start growing and you go from having people who are probably more generalist, who are probably more interested in the mission and understanding everything that's going on to having functions that need to position themselves to be able to support each other in different ways. So if you have a certain application that you're building, you might start to divide into different functionalities, different specialities about different parts of the stack. It might be dependent on the ways in which you're constrained now or where you find talent. And then you start to have to make decisions that there's an investment you're going to make in a certain technology that it's going to be a harder to get out of. So when you're early, you're small, you can decide that you're using, let's say, Postgres over Mongo. You probably don't have much technical debt associated with that. You can move very quickly. And as you grow and as you get more customers and there's more requests coming in from the customers and having to build your product roadmap with those in mind, 
it becomes harder to maintain the technical roadmap aspect of the things that you are trying to proactively do. And then the technical debt and the cost of transitioning from one decision to another or one technology or one workflow becomes higher and higher. And that's where I think the real trade-off starts to come in positioning people and the technology teams to have the right time and space to identify proactively the places that they're seeing both the most difficulties and then the most opportunities. And so that when you're planning and you're starting to actually have more formal, either quarterly or kind of other milestone-based planning cycles, to have places that you're planning flag and saying, we want to move and migrate certain places in technology or try these things here. And then reserving that time separate from the product development aspects and making sure that the right people are understanding how the product is going to influence the technology and vice versa. It gets, I think, a lot harder in the remote era as well, which we can talk about. So you're right. That's the other dimension that has been added and accelerated by COVID. So by the way, with regard to the remote that you mentioned, is it something that based on your experience now, you have more remote workers or you are not different from the time that you were pre-COVID and still the business, you don't see that much difference between before and after from remote standpoint? No, we've definitely become a much more distributed company, both in our hiring practices, as well as in through some of our growth, which has been inorganic and acquiring different products that have been geographically located in different areas. We've become a much more globally distributed workforce. And so by both the times as well as our strategy have adapted, I think, to take a, a less kind of a centric mindset around one place or one locality and be a lot more thoughtful about how we're trying to make the different parts of our geographically distributed teams feel like they're parts of the units that they're operating within. Now, I would like to also provide you an opportunity to highlight any point that you think it would be helpful to SaaS companies and product groups or business groups in the SaaS company that I may not have asked you, or that's a question that may not have been discussed here. Is there a particular topic in your mind that you would like to highlight? Yeah, I mean, I think that we touched on this earlier and we talked about data and acquiring data externally, acquiring data through the application and its usage. And what we didn't really hit on is building the right data analytics stack internally to support that from the beginning. So people talk about data science or data analytics, sometimes overlapping, sometimes with data science for production use cases. So the recommendation engine for Amazon, for instance. And then there's data analytics that you establish internally to be able to support your business. And that's often something that you think about later. So as we talked about, the small team starts, they iterate quickly, they understand their customers, hopefully that they're building the product and iterating. And there's probably technical debt that's being accumulated along the way because their focus is on getting the product market fit as quickly as possible. You're not really focused on setting a goal and objective and tracking to it. That's extra process that will slow things down usually as opposed to make things clear. And you don't need it because the intent is clear. As the team grows, as you start to specialize in different positions, as you start establishing more functions that are back office functions that now have a role to play like finance and the people team. And now there's a dedicated account management team and, and customer success. All of these places start to need to be able to coordinate and understand the impact that they're having on the organization and what the intent is that they're trying to solve for. And, and that gets harder and harder as the team grows, as it's remote, but also as people are further away from both customers and what the actual impact of their work is on the customer and the product that you're building. And so establishing a way in which you can provide that coordination and some ability for every person in the company to be able to access information about 
how well certain products are doing, how customer experience is going on on the product, what people are doing, what they're not doing. Evaluating goes back to the machine learning models, evaluating if people are finding value from them or not. That becomes essential. And that's often an afterthought in, okay, like, well, we need to add tracking. We need to add analytics. We need to connect our different operational systems like Salesforce or the marketing system, the data models within those. So none of these are particularly exciting aspects of building a SaaS company. What we found is if you haven't established those at the right point, so the maturity point is important here. You don't want to do that prematurely and over-optimize. But if you haven't established those, it's actually a real drag on the business and the organization in order to actually make decisions. And so the ultimate goal of any organization is to quickly make decisions for people to feel like they're making an impact and for them to understand how those decisions that they're making are creating that impact and feel empowered to do that. I mean, that's the values that I think every organization wants. I think it's just going to, we call them out explicitly with the values that we have as a company for bias for action, for acting like an owner. But it becomes very difficult to do that if you don't have the right operational data in front of you. And I'm not saying that you need to make every decision data-driven way. There's still a huge role to play for the hypotheses and the intuitions that people have. But what I am saying is that if you can't validate and understand what's going on today and establish the map of the right territory in the right way, then it becomes very difficult to even have the right intuitions. And if people have different intuitions to validate which one is more appropriately correct and directionally be able to go in the right direction. So I think that's one piece. It's for, especially for an enterprise company where there's going to be multiple different teams, all of them are incentivized in different ways, coordinated incentives off of some sets of data and operational ways that will create an alignment and a source of truth that people can start operating from. I think the other point for, especially for enterprise companies, is identifying what the right market segments that you're going for, especially as you grow. So at first, again, it's product market fit, and you start and you hopefully find a use case that really resonates. So for us, we weren't trying to solve a huge problem that is really challenging multiple big competitors. We solved, a, I think, a fairly specific targeted problem of state legislative tracking and understanding. And there were a few large competitors that had products that were servicing that category, but I think that they were not necessarily that large of a market, and we were able to penetrate and quickly grow from there. And as we grew, we've expanded into a number of other markets that now have us interfacing on a number of different fronts from geopolitical market intelligence to ESG benchmarking to local and global understanding of legislative and regulatory trends. And as you expand, I think it's easy to see things that you could do in all of those markets to be competitive against any one of them. But really being disciplined about if you're trying to move up market and be an enterprise company, identifying if you A, are trying to move up market, what is the real value that kind of the compounding solution that you're building and how you position yourselves against these different competitors, and that innovation can come in in that go-to-market part and the technology part. And the technology part is often the, obviously what I care about most and excited about, but acknowledging that it really has to make sense for that compounded value that you now have in these multiple markets and the different kind of enterprise customers. And then the, the third thing I wanted to call it is, especially for enterprise clients as well, is they're looking for that end-to-end -end solution, as we talked about. Oftentimes, the product is able to serve for 80%, 90% of whatever that need is. And that's, again, where a lot of startups start and they want to automate as much as they can. And what they then come up with is customers asking for customization here, customization there, and that starts to build up and you become very specialized or verticalized and that kind of stymies your, your growth. And so identifying where that 80 or 90% is that you can do automatically, and then what is the right way to solve for that 10 or 20? It might be a lot of efforts of, of having a channel partner who's someone who can do that for you. It might be investing in an internal team that is more professional services or analyst oriented. 
And then the question becomes back to the AI part, how do you make that as efficient as possible? How do you build the internal capabilities to have that human working with the machine aspects to enable them and be able to deliver the 100% solution and most of that technologically, some of that from a different kind of delivery mechanism involving more human effort, but be able to be competitive in how you're delivering that. The other dimension that's very interconnected with everything you talked about is the customer journey, right? So as you are building a better product, the content, the AI algorithms, everything are getting better and more maturity of the product and the team, this automatically will attract bigger problems. You know, you can solve better the bigger problems. So that will attract bigger customers. And as you said, the enterprise market, and that automatically will change the dynamism because now you are dealing with bigger customers, you are solving bigger problems. The customers are bringing you more challenging kind of things to solve. So automatically that also, as you get better, you get rewarded with these bigger projects that in a way it will be kind of bigger challenge. And then all of these things that you said, now the expectation is higher and the team structure is different. So all of these kind of on the customer side also can impact a lot of things that we do on the product side as a SaaS company. That's exactly right. So especially most products that I've seen that grow to a certain scale branch off from having one central product, even if they market it that way, to several different products that they support. And so as you do that, one of the harder questions is, what does the delivery mechanism look like? Is there a product-specific team for each one? Is there a core or a service or enterprise level that's like a platform that's supporting multiple teams? When do you make that transition? Where are the handoffs? I mean, even if you haven't gotten there, what I talked about separating kind of let's say the application team from the backend services or DevOps from backend services, all of those are individually driven decisions of I think every organization making a certain call of where is the biggest tension we see now and trying to solve for that. And I think identifying that reorganization as a living organization as it's growing is an acknowledgement of change and trying to just make the right move at the right time. Oftentimes it's reactive and the tension is built up to a point it's obvious where it is and you're trying to solve for it. The best thing is when you can be proactive about it and try to position people to the right places and say, we've grown to the point where, like you said, enterprise customers are coming to us and asking for more and more. All of these different products are getting asked for these one particular things. Now seems like the right time to try to have a platform that services multiple products from that capability. And now you have to establish a process for how that platform works with these product teams. So everyone gets their, their share, of their time or resources and their prioritization without trying to be creating a, too much of a bottleneck, which is a trade-off that you're making. And so there's this constant balancing act, which is exciting. It's part of, I think, why it's really exciting to work through all of these transitions. I would like to ask you to recommend one or some books that you like, and it has been something that you thought you benefited from it and you would like to share with us. Sure. It's hard to recommend one. There's a lot of knowledge. I mean, books are great because they basically accelerate your understanding of someone else's learnings through their lifetime. But I think two that I'll call out that are useful, not from the technical perspective, from the more constant, how do we understand people and, and work with people perspective? Because I think technology changes. It's always going to be something else that's coming out. I think the constant thing, especially for someone who's leading teams or growing or, or growing a business is identifying how to work with the people they have, because that's more constant, the psychology of, of the people that you're working with. So two that I think are really useful are, one, this is a, a classic, but I think it, it's constantly something that I think about and go back to is 
how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. There's just a lot of good life lessons about being empathetic, understanding the other person's point of view, how to listen, how to give praise. I think it really combines well with some of the more current management philosophy about empowering people, about leveling them up, about recognizing where people have superpowers and accelerating those and working with them on kind of the performance culture of one-on-ones. Like I think in some ways he was ahead of the curve on that and it ties into high output management and other things. But I think it's just a really good overall life book. And then the second one is a team of teams by Stan McChrystal. And that's a really good one as well, because it calls out that even though there's a hierarchy and a structure of an organization that you see in your human resources management system, the actual day-to-day work that's happening is not that. It's a lot of lines pointing between each other and centrally managed organizations with this strong hierarchy often lag behind and are not able to innovate because they basically depend on this kind of upward and downward communication where you have to go through a lot of channels. But if you have this not very tidy looking network of people communicating across different teams in a non-hierarchical way, it actually forms a lot stronger bonds and ability to actually execute and innovate and find the most interesting projects because I probably don't see the biggest problems that we see day to day. I think people in the weeds, in all of the different places that we have problems are on the periphery that I wouldn't even know about. They're the ones that see them, they surface them. And the best ways that they could surface them are through the different connections they have. And it gets a little messy. I think that there's chaos involved, but I think that's also part of why healthy organizations keep that kind of mindset because it allows them to keep going and growing quickly. Thank you for the discussion, Vlad. I hope to see you again as part of these podcast discussions and wish you all the best. No, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve A, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. dot